how do you make sense of the world? A world where, in fact, there is so many good things happening. People are giving up their time and food, do food banks. People who go out to rescue people in need. And yet, where you have a jihadi John murdering cold blood, where you have people living in abject poverty, where you have people setting out in leaky boats, as we've thought about already, and yet a world where you have beautiful sunsets, gorgeous mountains, and tsunamis, and earthquakes. How do you make sense of it? So many good people, so many evil, so much beauty, so much chaos. Now Dawkins would have us believe that in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, you won't find any reason in it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect. If there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. That's his explanation of how the world is. Note the contrast of C.S. Lewis. He says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. This is the point he makes. Not only as I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I believe in Christianity because by it I see everything else. What he's saying basically is that the Bible, the explanation that God has given us in the scriptures, enables us to see and understand what is going on. It sets out the fact that God created a world that was very good. He created humankind to fulfill their purpose in their relationship with their creator and their care for the creation. But now, tragically, it didn't last. And we see this perplexing mixture of good and evil, of beauty and of chaos. As we come to the book of Isaiah, we find that Isaiah provides a somewhat lengthy, it's 66 chapters, a somewhat lengthy summary of, in fact, the whole of the biblical message. It summarizes and shows us that God is determined to restore what he originally intended. He recognizes that things have gone wrong and he's put in motion a plan to bring about a restoration. And the two main themes that run through the book of Isaiah and did through the whole of Scripture are the reality of judgment, the fact that things will be put right, justice will prevail, and the certainty of hope, the means by which they will be put right. We might entitle chapter 1, and indeed the whole of the book, as God 
is working his purpose out. That as we look around and as we see good and evil, beauty and chaos, we wonder. But the reality is God is at work. God is fulfilling his plan of restoration. And as we go through Isaiah, we find these themes being worked out, explained and expanded, repeated very often. Now it's 66 books, so if we, 66 chapters. If we set out to do each one, we should be here for another year or so. So we compress them, and we're going to look at just five, including today. Very briefly. They're familiar passages. They are the ones which set the theme for the whole book. We're going to look at chapter 6, which shows that although the book is written mainly and God speaks to the nation of Israel, there are individual responsibilities to be taken in chapter 6. We look out at chapter 40, which sets out the amazing, unique God that is bringing his purposes to pass. And in 53, the unique way in which he will bring them to pass. And then finally, after Easter, the glorious fulfillment of God's restoration in a new heaven and a new earth. So how is God working? We see the beginning now in chapter 1. Things that he is doing. He's going to bring about judgment. He sets out hope. And there is the implication, although perhaps not clearly stated, but what we need to look at, that in fact there is a partnership in what he is doing. Israel was given specific commands, laws, guidelines for the way in which they should live. Ways which would identify them as the people of God. Live as a community. We've been thinking about community already this morning. And the nation of Israel was chosen to demonstrate what a community with God as their king would actually look like. They were to witness to that. Most Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God <laughs> is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. And tragically, tragically, God is now saying through Isaiah to the people, you are guilty of failing on both counts. On both counts. Verses 2 to 4, which we have read, we remind you. Listen, O heavens, pay attention, earth. This is what the Lord says. The children I raised and cared for have rebelled against me. Even an ox knows its owner, and a donkey recognizes its master's care. But Israel doesn't know its master. My people don't recognize my care for them. 
Oh, what a sinful nation they are, loaded down with a burden of guilt. They're evil people, corrupt children who have rejected the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on him. What a contrast to the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And they have turned their backs on him. Time and again, God has expressed his love for the nation. He said he chose them, not because they were great, but because he loved them. They were there to fulfill his purpose. We can almost hear the anguished cry of God as he looks. He looks at those he loves who have turned their backs on him. We get an echo of that in the New Testament. Jesus, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often have I longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. You were not willing. How I longed for you. Can you hear, feel the heart of God for his people? How I longed for you. And you turned your backs. And so it is that these people had disobeyed. And so there was this that God sets out the nature of the problem that exists. First of all, that there is this broken relationship with God. But it seems they were guilty on the second count as well. Verse 17, it says, Learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the cause of orphans, fight for the rights of widows. Clearly, this was not happening. And so there was this broken relationship within society. If we read on from verse 21 in the message translation, oh, can you believe it? The chaste city, that is Jerusalem, has become a whore. She was once all justice, living as good neighbors. Now they're all at one another's throats. Your coins are all counterfeits. Your wine is watered down. Your leaders are turncoats who keep company with crooks. They sell themselves to the highest bidder, grab anything not nailed down. They never stand up for the homeless, never stick up for the defenseless. And so they were guilty on two counts. In a court, normally when the judge Here's what the jury have decided, whether the complaint is guilty. He pronounces judgment and kind of loses interest. He passes on to the next case. How different here with God. Having set out the problem that exists, God immediately goes on to speak of hope. And chapter 1 points to the 
the way in which God is now going to remedy this situation to bring about restoration. We'll find it enlarged upon. And we, of course, who stand now on the other side of the cross, see it fulfilled. We read again this, this question about this frenzy of sacrifices. God's saying, don't you think I've had my fill of all this? He speaks of meetings and meetings and meetings. And he says to them, go home, wash up, clean up your act, sweep your lives clean of your evil doings so I don't have to look at them any longer. Say no to wrong. Learn to do good. Work for justice. Help the down and out. Stand up for the homeless. Go to bat for the distempless. In other words, what he says is in fact, you need to repent. You need to turn your lives around. You need to live differently. Obey my command. Really love me. Really love your neighbor. Sounds a bit like a phrase that sometimes crops up in our family now and again, uh, particularly when the children were complaining of having a bit of a cold and said they didn't want to go to school or something like that. The word be to them, pull yourself together. You know, just get on with it. Pull yourself together. Lift yourself up by your own bootstraps or other kinds of phrases. Sounds like the sort of motivational books you have. And I went to a motivational speaker once when I was in the States. And, you know, basically the message is, you can do it. You can do it. Just put your mind to it. Concentrate. You can do it. But, of course, the reality is that we can't. And so what does God say? Is he just saying, pull yourself together? No, he isn't. Because as we go on, we find what God says here now in verse 18. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them as white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, I will make them white as wool. If you only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by your enemies. And so what God presents is the need for the people to repent. But the basis of that repentance is to be the cleansing which he provides. He is dealing with the problem of sin. Most of what we try and do deals with the symptoms. It doesn't deal with the underlying problem that we face. The problem we have of this broken relationship with God. So we find that he foretells this. Chapter 53, which we'll look at later, speaking of the servant who was to come. He was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so that we could be healed. You see here what it is. The cleansing has enabled the turning around to take place and to be a reality. It's interesting what we had early right at the beginning about what John Newton was saying. I'm not what I would like to be. But God has given me hope, given me the possibility of change. 
not because I'm going to just get try harder, although that is part of it, but because God has dealt with the underlying problem that we have. So we find that's now fulfilled in the person of Christ. John writes in his first letter about Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. He himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Not only ours, but the sins of all the world. And here is the the glorious news of the gospel. Yes, God recognizes that things are distorted. They're not as they should be. But I am doing something about it. Christ has come. He has died for your sin so that you can be cleansed, so that you can be reconciled, so that you can actually live a new life. And ultimately, I'm going to restore it all. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. And it was this message, in fact, that was given to the nation of Israel. They, in fact, were called, as we read in Genesis, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God wanted to demonstrate through them what he was going to do, what he was doing. And so, in fact, there's the remarkable fact that they were called into partnership with God in the fulfillment of his purposes. And so we read in Isaiah 43, You are my witnesses, O Israel, says the Lord. You are my servant. You have been chosen to know me, believe in me, and understand that I, am alo- that I alone am God. There is no other God than ever has been, than ever will be. You are witnesses that I am the only God. And so they were committed and called to be in partnership. And it's a remarkable thing now as we go into the New Testament that we find that that now is something which has been passed on to the people of God in the New Testament times. So Peter writes, quoting, in fact, from what was said once about Israel. Now he writes to the church, 1 Peter 2, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, that you may declare the praises of God who has called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. So this partnership of being a blessing to the nations, of demonstrating what the purposes of God are all about, is passed now on to the people of God today. Two ways we see that it's, it works out. It's first of all that they should be the people of God. They should be identified as such. And that brings, of course, very much not just to personal behavior, but how we behave as community. We are the nation, the holy nation, the people of God, and we are to demonstrate and to witness to all around what it means to be the people of God. So Paul, writing uh, to the Romans, 
God knew what he was doing from the very beginning. He decided from the outset to shape the lives of those who love him along the same lines as the life of his son. We see the original intended and intended shape of our lives there in him. We see the intended shape of our lives in Jesus. That's how we are meant to be. Someone once said, Jesus was the most extraordinary man that ever lived. Then somebody pointed out and said, no, he wasn't. He was the only ordinary man who ever lived. Because that's how people were supposed to live. Here, in Jesus, is the intended shape of your life, of my life. But there was a second thing. Because not only were they to be the people of God, but they were to share the message that God had provided. Again, Paul writing to the Romans, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How can they call on them to save them unless they believe in him? And how can they believe in him if they've never heard about him? How can they hear about him unless someone tells them? We're called to share. And he quotes again from the end of Isaiah, how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation. Paul points out again in 2 Corinthians, God has committed to those who are reconciled the ministry of reconciliation. So we are to share. So we are to the people of God. So what is God saying to the nation through Isaiah? You need to understand the way things are. Primarily because your relationship with me is broken. Because of that, your relationship with one another is broken. But there is a solution. There is a means by which these can be put out right that they might fulfill their privilege and responsibility of being the people of God. So how are we going to work this out today? Mark Green, in his book, Thank God It's Monday, mentions that David Ward was a Christian advertising executive. He left one agency to join another. He made a huge difference to where he had been. When his new company, a secretary, was introduced to him, she said, oh, you're David Warden. You're the one who says hello to receptionists. I've been dying to meet you. You're the one who says hello to receptionists. Just a straightforward, ordinary, everyday thing that someone took the notice be nice to someone. How do you treat the checkout lady 
the supermarket. I get so irritated because I'll never enough of them. And by the time I get to them, I, I'm... But there they are, doing that hub-drub job. How nice it is when somebody actually will smile to them, say something nice to them. Just little things. When Nathan Whitaker was starting out, he said he was going into banking. I said, well, how, what are you going to bring as a Christian to banking? I always remember what he said. He said, integrity. If ever there was somewhere that needed integrity, it's the banks. <laughs> but that's it. It's in our daily life, in our daily living, that we are to demonstrate this. Then the question of sharing it. Do you find that difficult? I, some people are so natural that they just seem able to do it. And I sometimes wonder whether we try to make too much of it. We think we've got to preach the gospel to everybody we meet. Well, it'd be nice if we could in one sense, but that's not it. It's merely being able to share with someone what Jesus means to me. And then perhaps to be able to share what Jesus could mean to you. March the 12th, I think, is aimed particularly to help us to do that. So then, may God enlarge our vision. Enlarge our vision for each new day. What if at the beginning of the day, we actually set out realizing this day, oh yeah, I'm at college, I'm nursing all these difficult people, I'm trying to sell this particular product. But this day, I am actually in partnership with God to bring about a new heaven and a new earth. Transform our day, I think. Praying that God will enable me to live as someone who knows God and to give me courage boldness, wisdom to be able to share. I used to pray for opportunities to witness. Now I realize that's not the right prayer. I pray that when I have the opportunities, I actually do it. So may God bless us. May God give us a good body as we go out there partnering with God.